All right, well, good morning, Salem. Happy uh, Mother's Day uh, to all of you moms uh, who are here and who, all of you who are joining us uh, online. Uh, this, is, um, this is one of those days, and as I think back through our own story, through Nikki and I's story of infertility, this is a day uh, of both celebration and, and grieving. And, uh, you know, we want to celebrate uh, and rejoice with those who rejoice, and we want to mourn uh, with those who mourn. So wherever you're at in your story, uh, we, we love you, and uh, we are with you. So I uh, want to just make sure we don't leave, leave out uh, a key uh, group of people as well. Uh, this is finals week, uh, and so we also rejoice with those who rejoice, and we mourn with those who mourn. <laughs> Didn't study quite enough, or whatever it is. So, okay, but whoever you are, um, we are glad uh, that you are here uh, this morning. So, if you've got a Bible, um, I'd like to invite you to open up to the book of Jonah. Uh, this is a, a book that we've been in. We've only got two weeks left, crazy, uh, today and next week. So it's a series called God's Word uh, in God's World, really. It's about um, these three kind of primary character groupings. We, we start the story uh, with Yahweh, with God, right? Yahweh, if you don't know, is God's personal name. And so you have Yahweh, and then you have Jonah, and Jonah is, is not just an individual. Uh, he's also the representative for all of God's chosen people. Uh, and so you have them. And then you have the world. And so kind of imagine this triangle, right? So you've got God uh, and Jonah or his chosen people uh, and the world. And so there's these relationships that happen, that God has this immense, uh, deep, profound, intrinsic love for Jonah and for us. And he also has this deep, profound, intrinsic love for the world, and it's really the same. He has love for both. So there's these, these triangles, right? But there's also this, this connection between us and the world and the way that God has called us and designed us uh, to be workers in his world. So I want to just recap uh, for us this morning really quick as we come back to our handy-dandy uh, board. Um, by the way, I've kind of drawn out so where we've been at until this point. We've been in three, three different chapters, chapter one, two, uh, and three. And uh, you may notice that I've added a, a couple of fun images, and that's because last week somebody came to me and said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but I was sitting behind a kid, um, and, or maybe behind a family is better, and he saw that the kid was drawing along with everything that I did, and he would show his dad as he's drawing. And so I added some fun, you know, <laughs> Fun images. So here we are. Okay. So chapter one. So if you're following along, chapter one, God comes uh, into the picture and it says that the word, uh, the word of Yahweh came to the, to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And what does he, he do? He says, I want you to go to that great city uh, called Nineveh. And what we find is, is that uh, Nineveh is really this it's the city filled with 120,000 people, which is a ton of people, right? Especially in that day. Maybe today's world, that's not super big. Um, but in that, in that world, it was huge. And they're described as people, a people who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. And so it's really, it's a way of saying they have no 
clue who Yahweh is uh, and what he wants to do uh, in this world. And so it's described as a great city. And uh, that word in Hebrew, great, is the word gadol. And we're going to talk about that later uh, today. So God says, go here. And what does Jonah do? Does he go here? No, he gets on a boat and he flees and he goes to into chapter two, right? And uh, here's where we see this, this uh, we just kind of despair with Jonah, this, this, the depressing fall as Jonah is sinking and sinking and sinking, right? Because he's thrown off of the boat, he's sinking and sinking, and eventually he ends up at the bottom of the Mediterranean Ocean. And so this is where he is, right? Uh, and he's in this box or this cage with these bars on top of him. And so he becomes, in, even though he's physically at the bottom of the ocean, this becomes a symbol for the total depravity of us as human beings, that this is us in our total brokenness, right? This is, apart from divine intervention, there is no possible escape from this scenario, both physically and spiritually, for Jonah. And so what happens is that it's in this, it's in this space that he, he repents, and he, he shoves, he turns back in right relationship with God. And so what does God do? He provides this miraculous, redemptive vehicle in this giant cheddar cheese fish uh, who comes and eats him up, right? And he survives and comes and brings him to the surface and then, you know, vomits him up onto dry land. And so here's where Jonah is in this moment, is that he has a choice that he needs to make. Because the word, of the, word, the word of the Lord comes back to Jonah a second time, which says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And so he has to make this choice, right? I, I am out of the belly of this giant fish, and now I'm on the nice sandy beach under presumably, you know, a, a nice shaded coconut tree, drinking some coconut milk, and he has to decide, am I going to obey God? And so what he does is he, he actually obeys. And so he goes to Nineveh, and what the author is doing is that he's, he's painting this picture for us because the Ninevites, these people who are just a massive mess of a people, murderous, terrible people, right? He paints this picture for them that they are in sin and they have this sinful nature. And so really what the author is doing is that he's, he's equating these two boxes and he's pulling the rug out from underneath us as humans because there's he's really, he's giving us no reason, there's no possible way in which we, uh, as, as other people, retain a moral high ground. We are no better in our brokenness, in our mess. Apart from God's intervention, we are no better than the Ninevites, than these people over here, right? We are exactly the same, and so what happens then is that the author, right, what happens is that the, these people in the midst of, of a call to repent, they repent, and we ended last week with this pointing to, um, to, the, to the New Testament cross, right? We talked about how, how can God be just in this world, and so we talked about God who is loving and holy. Um, he has to bring judgment, but he also brings grace, and it's at the center of this, this basically this spot, this intersection is where we find ourselves at the very center of God's redemptive plan. And so it's not just judgment on people. This is the work of God's justice. This is how God can be right in the midst of sin being both loving and holy. And so as we look at this story, 
we would think that, that this is where the story would end. Because this is, in some sense, the fairy tale ending, right? This is, this is the pinnacle or the crescendo of the story. It didn't start great, but all of these people end up repenting and turning. And we think, gosh, this is, this is where the story should end. And yet, we find that it actually doesn't, right? We would think that it would just stop right there, and that would be the end of the story, and that everybody would be happy, but we would be wrong. And there's actually a whole nother chapter, chapter four. And so then you begin to wonder, okay, what in the world is gonna happen in chapter four? Everybody, everybody should be happy, right? Everybody in the whole city should be happy. Um, and, uh, and it made me think of the story from a long time ago. How many of you guys have heard of the EFCA's, that's our denomination, the EFCA's youth conference called Challenge? Have you heard of this? Yes, it's super awesome. So, so several years ago, uh, we took a whole bunch of students down to Challenge. I don't remember where it was, but uh, um, the MC for the weekend, uh, for, this, for this week, was, was a friend of mine. And so he texted me one night and said, hey, Seth, can I come and interview some of the students from your youth group uh, up in the audience? I said, yeah, that's great. So uh, <laughs> check this out. Here's what happens in the video. It's crazy. Hey Seth, got a little video here for you. Look at how pumped these kids are. They made it on that Jumbotron and I'm getting ready to do an interview and you know, she's- can we, can we switch it back over? There we go, happy awesome. And I'm hey happy Seth, got a little video here for you. Look at how pumped these kids are. They made it on that Jumbotron and I'm getting ready <laughs> to do an interview and you know, she's happy and I'm happy and then all of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> he just looks so angry. Oh man! It's on Facebook. You can download it. It's all yours on the there Challenge Conference Facebook page. You guys can go download it and make it, have fun. So this guy on the right is 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 a guy named Jake. Uh, Jake actually was in uh, um, Colorado when we were there, and he actually moved out to Charlotte when we were there, and uh, and, and interned in our ministry. Jake is a wonderful, wonderful man of God, and in ministry, it's just one of those moments where you're happy, like you catch a picture at the wrong time. You know, it's just one of those things. He's not actually angry, but he looks so angry. Everybody on the screen is happy. I mean, look at the, this kid in the back. That's Scott. He's in the, the tie-dye. He's cheering. Woo-hoo! And then there's, there's Jake. <laughs> and Jake and Jonah both start with J. So here we are, right? right? Everybody in the story should be happy. Everybody should be happy, and yet we find in this story that Jonah is actually very upset. And so what we're going to see is what's so strange is that we would have thought that the story would have ended in chapter 3, right, in this crescendo, but we're actually going to get a glimpse of Jonah, and the author is going to paint a picture of Jonah, this caricature picture of Jonah where he's at his absolute worst. He's worse than he was even in chapter 1, and it's a turn in the story. It's not something that we would expect. So here we are in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So everybody repents. The whole city repents. Remember the opposite of the, the sports wave. Instead of everybody going up, everybody goes down. Everybody is happy except for Jonah, exceedingly. In fact, if you, 
If you uh, take like a little bit more literal um, translation of this in the Hebrew, it would be this. The evil was exceedingly evil to Jonah. That's a, to- that's a totally different take, right? This is absurd. This is, this is bizarre, but this is what Jonah's doing. He's actually taking all of the goodness of who God is and all of the, the greatness of this repentance story, and he's now attributing it to evil, right? This is, this is the story that's being, that's being painted for us, right? It's absolutely ridiculous. So how many of you guys, show of hands, actually sympathize with Jonah now? <laughs> Not many of us. Why? This is like watching a show or watching a movie, and you watch like three quarters of the way through, and you think, wow, they're not perfect, but, uh, but there's some redeemable qualities in this person, you know? But then all of a sudden, they do something that's so ridiculous that you're like, I'm out. <laughs> I remove my fandom. <laughs> right? I can no longer support this character, and that's kind of the way it is with Jonah. We're like, ah, hands off. Because right? he's just done something. He's taken all of the goodness of God and all of the goodness of this repentance story, and he's now attributing it to evil. Right? You see, what happens with Jonah is that Jonah has this expectation. Because he came into the city preaching what? Like, like this, this prophecy. Right? He came in, and what he's asking for is judgment, judgment, judgment. That's what he wants from God, judgment, judgment, judgment. And when he doesn't get the judgment that he wants from God, what does he do? He flips it, and he takes that judgment, and he puts it onto Yahweh, and he says, this is really your fault. This is all your fault. You are the one ultimately to blame for this. So now ask us this question. Are we being too critical of Jonah? If I were to answer honestly, I want to say yes. But the reason why I want to say yes is because every time I read this story, this powerful, powerful story, I see my heart in it. And so when I see my heart in this, I want to say yes, we're being too critical of Jonah because I want to protect who? Me. My own heart. I want to protect me. And yet, I don't think that we're being too critical of Jonah, right? There's something that's not right in this story. And the author actually is going to show us one more, uh, one more thing. So, if we come back to our board here again, remember it starts in chapter 1 with the great city of Nineveh, okay? And we come over here to chapter 4. And we're going to draw another box because... Because Jonah, in this space, that word gadol for great in Hebrew, that word gadol is the same word that's used in the Hebrew for exceedingly. And so it's like as if the author is portraying for us this symbol that what started with this great city, that God has this deep, intrinsic, powerful love for these people. But when they repent, Jonah flips. And the judgment flips. And all of a sudden, it's like we take all of the greatness of that and we turn it into this great displeasure. Right? This whole thing is filled with the excessiveness of Jonah's displeasure. 
And this is what the author is painting for us. This is the character that we're dealing with, that God would do something so amazing and then he would attribute it to this great evil, the succeeding evil. And so what the author is really doing is he's showing us the hardness of the heart of Jonah. And so, like, really, so chapter one, if you start in chapter one, it's like um, the guy, the author, puts his foot on the gas pedal, and he starts the, starts the story going, and as the story continues, it just increases and increases and increases, and we would have thought that it would have ended at chapter three, but he keeps going, and really, we find it at full pace, and the author's not going to leave anything to bear here. He's going to go to great depths to show the brokenness of this character, Jonah. And it's like, and I didn't bring an actual rubber band because I didn't want to like hurt myself, um, but if you were to think about taking a rubber band and putting it in your four fingers, when you first start to stretch it, right, at the very beginning stages, you know, it's, it's very pliable and it moves very easily, but you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And eventually you get to a, a point in stretching a rubber band where you're afraid it's going to snap, right? It's like it's going like it to hit you right in the eye. <laughs> um, but here's the reality, is that oftentimes when we think we're at our breaking point, guess what? You can pull it just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And I think that's what the author is doing here with this character of Jonah, because he's helping us as readers, listeners, understand that there is this continuous stretching, and he's trying to help us understand the depth of the stretching that God is doing, and he's hoping at some point in our lives that with that string or that rubber band will actually break, and it's where we fall to our knees and we just admit in total humility, I was in the wrong that there's something wrong about me and it's deeper and bigger than I ever would have imagined. And I think that's what the author is doing in this thing, right? Because when we think about this, we look at this and we go, gosh, like how, like if this is chapter one and this is chapter four, like what happened to chapters two and three? Apparently, Jonah was not as deep. He still had, a, he still had more stretching that needed to be done, more digging, more work in God's heart, you know, before he really, really understands what God wants him to understand. Now, we may not be completely familiar with this story. We might listen to the story and go, gosh, okay, I, I, don't, I don't resonate completely. But here's the deal. We do, all of us are going to resonate with the idea of stretching. And all of us are going to resonate with the idea of anger, Right? Like we all resonate with anger. That's something that's very common in our, in our lives. This, this last week, or maybe just yesterday, I can't remember when, uh, but Nikki was driving and I wasn't in the car and Eden, who is turns three this, this summer, um, <laughs> made the comment. She goes, all these cars are driving so slow. <laughs> and she looked at, at my wife, at Nikki, and she goes, she goes that makes you frustrated. And Nikki goes, well, no, it doesn't make me frustrated, but it does make Dada frustrated. <laughs> and I'm like, this is my legacy, right? The, like, what I, she's picking up on my frustration and on my anger, right? This is, this is so common and so normal in our everyday lives, right? We have kids who won't pick up their rooms, we have kids who are tired and frustrated because their parents keep nagging on them to pick up their rooms. 
We're overlooked at work. We have a stressful week uh, at school. The, the system, the justice system in this world, in, in America, is broken. We all have these frustrations and these angers in our lives. It's daily, it's weekly, it's just repetitive over and over and over. And there are two types of anger. One is the righteous kind, um, where Jesus enters into the temple and he overthrows the tables. You remember this story? Right? What is he doing? He's protecting Yahweh and protecting Yahweh's plan. Right? And so he, it's a very righteous anger. But for most of the time, for me, in my life at least, my, my anger is not very righteous. In fact, it's very unrighteous. And it's, it's less about protecting God's plan and more about me, protecting my preferences. This is not the way that it's supposed to go. This is not the way that I want life to be. And I get frustrated and I get angry. And we look at Jonah. What kind is Jonah's? Unrighteous. Because he says, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. This is not the way that my life is supposed to go. This is not the type of repentance or the way that Nineveh was supposed to respond, right? Everything is wrong. And it's, and it's all about his preferences. And so what does he do in, cha in chapter 4, verse 2, right? And it says, and he prayed. By the way, this is actually meant to be a parallel to chapter 2, because remember chapter 2, we find him in the depths and the brokenness of his mess, uh, and he prays. But this is a very different prayer in verse 2. It says, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God. Wait, what? Like, are, you, are, you, are, you, are you kidding? Jonah, this, this is why you fled. You fled because you knew that God was awesome and he would do great things. Yes, that's why I fled. I fled, right? You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What is happening with Jonah in this moment? He's actually quoting from the Old Testament uh, in Exodus 34. If you remember this, this is when uh, Yahweh is giving Moses the Ten Commandments. It's a time in Israel's history when they are steeped in idolatry just over and over and over. Just the, all they do is, is worship idols. And so, so God shows up and he says that the Lord passed before him uh, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's Exodus 34. This is what he's quoting. And it sounds really good. And you're like, wait, okay, that's kudos to Jonah. But the reality is, is that Jonah is actually using Exodus 34 against Yahweh. Because this verse continues in, in verse 7, and he doesn't quote verse 7. Because there's some powerful stuff here. He's talking about Yahweh. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What does he do? He leaves out the part about forgiveness and justice. All he wants is judgment. And he totally skips the part about forgiveness. And you think about these words, if you go back to this verse 2, this first word, gracious, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. 
And so when, when Jonah is talking to God about his attributes, he's saying, gosh, God, I knew that you were gracious. Um, you have unmerited favor for people, but really, I think you should, you, this should be merited. <laughs> this shouldn't be unmerited favor. This should be merited. This should be about what people earn and deserve because they don't deserve it. I do. That's Jonah's argument. Are you like, are you kidding? <laughs> you think it should be merited. You're, you're, you're done if you think it's merited, right? But this is what he says. I think it should be merited. What's mercy? Mercy is the word for compassion. The negative side of that is soft. And so he's like saying, God, you're, you're just being too soft. You're not being hard enough with these people. You're being too soft, right? Right? Slow to anger. You, we really, God, you should be quick to anger. You should be a little bit more like me. <laughs> you should be a little bit more impulsive. Just say whatever comes up. Whatever your gut says, just say it and do it. And if you're more like me, this would have turned out better. Right? That's what Jonah's saying. It's crazy. And there's this last one, right? Abounding in steadfast love. The word for steadfast love in Hebrew is the word chesed. And chesed means steadfast love. It means it's an enduring. It never fails over and over and over. It's repetitive. It never runs out. It's unconditional. It never runs out. And so to say that it's abounding in steadfast love is redundant. He's saying the accumulation of who you are is just too good. You are too good. Yahweh, you're too awesome. You're too loving. You're too forgiving. You're too amazing. You see, you see the ridiculousness of this, right? And then he says, when you do that, because of that, you relent from disaster, so here's where we see the tension. I want you to invite you into this, right? Because here Jonah is acknowledging all of the goodness of who God is in all of his character, his graciousness, his mercy, his slow to anger, his steadfast love, his relenting in disaster, all of that goodness. And yet what does he say in verse one? That this is evil. Do you see the brokenness in his mind the brokenness of his theology is he takes all of the goodness and he attributes it to evil. He attributes it to evil. And see, this is where it takes it back, right? He says this, this is what he's saying. This is his self-righteousness exposed. Because he says, when it comes to grace and love, I deserve as much as I can get, as much as I need. But when it comes to those people or that people or that person, they annoy me, or this person because they're overbearing, or this person because whatever reason, we say I need it, but they don't. It should be as hard as possible for those people to attain life and forgiveness, right? It's his self-righteousness exposed. And it's when he does this, as his self-righteousness is exposed, it leads him to a very dangerous place with this dangerous saying, Check this out in verse three. What does he say? He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, you remember back to chapter one, this is not outside of Jonah's character. Right? This isn't outside of his wheelhouse. When confronted with the storm, what does he say? Throw me overboard. It's basically to say, I'd rather die. And it's, 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 it's this 
picture this caricature of a man who's so displeased with God that he would rather die than be a part of it. And maybe, maybe it's not just death. Maybe it's not meant to be so, uh, so literal. Maybe it's just meant to be an exaggeration. Maybe it's just Jonah's way of saying, if this is the way that the game is played, then I'm not going to play. And this is what we're going to see in the next part, next week, in our last portion of Jonah, is that Jonah is, is a kid who goes in, into the corner. Right? We see this on the playground, where kids are playing, and they go, if this is how the game is going to be played, I'm not going to play. Pouty face. This is his attitude. He is a grown-up toddler. Right? He's, he's, he's Eden. He's my daughter. As a grown-up version, he just sits in the corner. I'm not going to play. Right? This is his attitude. It's, it's ridiculous that this is his attitude. Right? See, Jonah is so wrapped up in judgment that he says, I am not going to be the bearer of your good news. Why? Because your good news is too good. Your good news is too great. I'm not going to play. I'm not going to do it. I won't be your messenger. I won't be your tool. It's too good. In fact, then he makes it conditional. It's his way of saying, God, even if I were to do it, you're not giving me anything in return. So unless you give me such and such, then I'm not going to do it. Right? It's this, it's this, it's this grown-up toddler perspective. And it's this brilliance of the author who's inviting us into the story. Because as we see this over and over, we're seeing Jonah's heart exposed. His heart is being exposed over and over and over again. And what we find is just seeing this Jonah who's a powder. And, and sometimes we go, oof, that kind of hurts me. That's hard for me to wrestle with because I know that I can be a grown-up toddler. So how does God, how does Yahweh interact? How does he enter back into this story with, with Jonah? Does he throw punches back? No, look at this in verse 4. It's so good. This is just grace-filled. It's so loving. And the Lord, Yahweh, said, do you do well to be angry. Do you do well? Do you have good reason to be angry? He's basically saying, by being angry, are you bringing good into the world? No. No, Jonah, if you think that you are, you're not bringing good into the world. I'll tell you a story about a guy uh, whose name uh, is Gordon Wilson. Gordon Wilson uh, grew up in Northern Ireland, was a strong, devoted Christian, Christ follower, uh, who operated his family drapery business. He lived from 1927, uh, I believe, to 1995. And if you know anything about your, your world history or your European history, um, you might know that this was kind of at the height of this conflict between uh, the British, who were, were ruling um, Northern Ireland at the time, and the IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army. And in order to oust or an attempt to oust Britain from their power, um, the IRA started using bomb tactics. And so one day, Gordon traveled to the town center of this very small village that he lived in, in Northern Ireland. 
and he went with his daughter. And it was on Remembrance Day, which is, I think, the Britain's, uh, British version of Memorial Day. So we're like honoring lost soldiers, fallen soldiers. And so he goes to participate in this, and the IRA had actually targeted this town center for a bombing in 1987. The bomb goes off and they collapsed in the rubble and Gordon survives, but his daughter does not. And I want to read this to you because a, um, a reporter found Gordon Wilson on, uh, his, uh, in the hospital bed and was asking some questions and wrote some of this down. And this is not on the screen because in full honesty, I don't think I'm going to make it through without crying. Here's what, here's what she says. No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson described his last conversation with his daughter. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could and said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me, and those were the last words I ever heard her say. And I read this story, and I think about Eden. What would her last words be to me? And when she was gone, how much anger I would feel at the loss of that because of these people's actions. Have every right to be angry. By the way, I'm a sympathetic crier. I watch Hallmark movies and I just cry. So um, I don't do it very often up here, but Nikki watches those, she's stone cold, and I'm like But here's how this story goes on, and this should be on your screen. To the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on to add, but I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring her back to life. I will pray tonight and every night for the men who did this, that God will forgive them. No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such powerful impact, emotional impact. A man who had every right to be angry, every right to want judgment and penalty and punishment and death and what he chose was the way of the cross. And if you remember, there's this perfect image of Jesus who, who was being in the middle of being crucified of the very people who nail him to the cross. And as he's nailed to the cross, right, he would have had to go up and down pulling off of the nails and pushing off of the nails because the, the common death on the, on the crucifix was, was suffocation because you can't get air into your lungs, and so you have to constantly open up your lungs. And so with each of these things, every word you say is a precious word. You wouldn't even want to speak, and yet it's in this moment as Jesus gathers his breath, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And he doesn't miss the forgiveness piece from Exodus 34, verse 7. It's not just judgment, it's I'm here to accomplish the justice of God. 
to bring forgiveness of sins to a world in need. And when we, if I just want to take a step back to last week for a second, because when we, we looked at this cross, right? Love, holiness, judgment, and grace. When we enter into a situation in life, whether it's the brokenness in our home or in the brokenness in Fargo-Moorhead, the brokenness of Salem, the brokenness of the world, whatever it is, America, and if we bring only judgment, what we're bringing is actually annihilation, because we say life isn't worth living for you in some sense. Because we're voiding it of the gospel. We're voiding it of hope and healing. But when we enter into a situation, instead of just bringing judgment, we bring love and grace. We end up offering hope and healing to a broken, broken world and to a group of people, especially like Nineveh, who are in dire need and a group of people who God says, I love these people intrinsically, powerfully, and deeply. You see, the book of Jonah is, a, is about Yahweh inviting us to see the world in the way that he sees the world. That's what Jonah is really about. And it's a book that teaches us very blatantly that, that we can't stand to live for our preferences when it gets in the way of God's plan. Because God's plan supersedes my preferences. My preferences are good, but when God's plan is present, that's what matters most. And so I ask this challenging question for each of us, myself included. Are we okay with the tension in life? If God says, I have a deep, intrinsic, powerful love for a people here in Fargo-Moorhead, are we okay living in the tension of that while we still just want our preferences. Are we okay with that? And if so, at least we acknowledge it. And we're on the boat. <laughs> and we're going somewhere, but it's the opposite direction. Right? Life is too short. In James chapter uh, 4, uh, the author describes our life as a vapor. And so when you're cooking a pot and you see that steam kind of come up and you see it and it's there for a moment and then it's gone and then you never give it another thought, that's the way our life is. That's what James says. Your life is like this poof and it's done. Life is way too short for us just to live out our preferences over and over and over. There's just too much at stake, which takes us back to the dilemma of this self-righteousness. Like, I deserve grace, but other people don't. And the author reminds us, he's pulling the rug out from underneath of us, and he's saying, guess what? You guys are the same. There's no moral high ground no one is better than the other. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we remove that self-righteousness and it's exposed. This last, uh, well, just yesterday, I was going to say this last week, but just yesterday, um, Nikki and I had this um, desire uh, to put in a new fence. We ordered a new fence because we have dogs and we need to keep them, you know, contained. And, and, um, and so I thought in my naivete that we could actually do this. <laughs> Uh, and so we had 50 post holes that we needed to dig, and yeah, you can hear the groaning. Yeah, it's already, yeah, yeah, just wait, yeah. So we rented a one-man auger and uh, started drilling, and halfway down, it got stuck. Pulled it out, went and got a two-man auger, got it down, and it got stuck. 
and this was our, uh, this was our work, right? And so at the, center, at the bottom of this hole, I found, I had never seen this. This is dirt, but it's super sticky. By the way, this is the, this is the result of our entire day's work. <laughs> you're, you're laughing now. Yesterday was not, right? One hole, one hole. We couldn't even get the second auger out. We had to dig out a bigger hole just to get out the auger. And what we find is that for each of us, there's this dark, sticky mess inside of our life. And we think about the story. It reminds me of the story because we think that in one simple zip, zip, God's going to be done with this process. And what we realize is that there's always another hole. In fact, there are 49 more <laughs> holes. So who wants to come? <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's going to be really, really good. So there's this in our lives. And so I enter back into this with this question, the same question from verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? Whatever's going on in your life, whatever's going on in your heart, whoever wronged you or whatever it is, do you do well to be angry? Are you bringing good back into the world in this way? And if not, where does forgiveness fit? Where does the justice of the cross ultimately fit? Because judgment divides and wounds and kills and destroys and annihilates. But justice, the gospel justice, grace and love promotes healing, redemption, restoration. That's the world that I want to live in, that we want to live in. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And we're going to end with a couple of questions. But I want to cast this vision for you here for a second. Remember we talked about God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, right? God is too good, too amazing, too awesome. What if at Salem, what if it was a common thing that when people asked us about how we're doing, our primary response, all of us, was God is too good. He's just too good. <laughs> Not in the bad way that Jonah says it, but in the good way. He's awesome. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's loving. And, and I understand that in the total depth and the brokenness of my life, he's just too good to me. Would you like to know him? Would you like to taste the goodness of God? I think that we have the opportunity and the privilege to do far better than Jonah because of the cross. Let me ask you these questions, and then we'll sing cave. Where is their displeasure, right? Where is this in my life, this dark, sticky, gross mess underneath that causes things to get stuck, right, over and over? Where is this deep, dark displeasure in my life? And, and whoever that belongs to, whether it's Yahweh or somebody else, I challenge you to ask that person for forgiveness and be specific about it and talk to them. Second question, table. Who in my life will help hold me accountable in my anger, right? Let's not leave this open to strangers, <laughs> right? We need people in our life who can call us to accountability it's to say, Seth, you just took the goodness of God and you turned it into evil. That's not okay, right? 
It's a great table question. Who's going to hold me accountable? And the road, to who or to what situation is Yahweh asking me to bring hope and healing, right? Maybe it's family, maybe it's work, maybe it's my neighborhood, maybe it's as we think about canvassing over here to invite kids to, to summer blast. To who is God nudging you to bring hope and healing? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we enter into this last song, this amazing grace. It's a reminder, even, if, even in its historical setting, the man who wrote this, it's, it's a reminder of the grace that pours over us, that extends over all of our sin and all of our sinful nature, right? It's amazing grace. And God, would we be reminded that you are too good in our lives, in, in, in whatever we're in, whatever the depth, whatever the brokenness, maybe it's even in the joy, whatever it is, that my heart's cry would be, no matter the depth, that you are too good. You are great. You are gracious. You are merciful. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquity of sins. Lord, we love you. And this morning, may we be giant recipients of your goodness. And may we, as we leave this place today, amazing grace would be on our hearts and that people, wherever we go, would see and sense and feel and maybe even hear the goodness of Yahweh. Amen.